right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management, we talk about rehab after surgery, we talk about improved mobility, and we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. And we are on tap to talk a little bit about elbow injuries in baseball. We've got Dr. Rick, you know him. And then we've got two other gents joining us for this particular podcast. Uh, Dr. Brad uh, Shook. Now, if you're looking out and uh, on the, the, the video and you're saying to yourself, Scott, how do you get shook out of it? I don't know. That comes from Dr. Brad. And then for... Uh, Cora, we've got uh, Jackson Taylor, a guy so incredible. He's got two first names in his name. So that's where we're at. So we're going to start with you, Dr. Brad. Give us a little 411 on your background, and then we're going to hand it on over to Jackson, and boom, on to Dr. Rick. Give us background. Yes, I'm Brad Shuck. The name's German. It's probably mispronounced, but we'll have to ask some Germans for that one. I am, And I am a shoulder-elbow surgeon at Mayo Clinic here in Jacksonville. All right, Jackson, give us a background into you, why you're such an incredible professional, along with your beard. Incredible professional. The beard is homegrown. It is, is all I natural. So. I In hope fact. so. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't patched together. Uh, unlike Brad, my, uh, my name was yelled in a shower because my dad thought it would sound good over a loudspeaker at a football game. So that's, that's as easy as mine gets right there. Uh, I am a physical therapist and performance coach down in Punta Vedra, Florida right now, uh, working mostly with lots of golfers. Well, there you go, man. And uh, Dr. Rick, I'm going to hand it on over to you because everybody well, knows you, Dr. Rick. <laughs> Run with it. So I'm Dr. Rick Lehman, and tonight we're going to talk about youth elbow injuries, which I think we will learn on this podcast have become increasingly uh, more common and more problematic. And we'll talk about some of the reasons for that. And, and first of all, I want to thank everybody for their participation tonight. And starting out, Dr. Shook, let's, let's just kind of set the table for what you consider to be a youth, what you consider to be an adolescent, and, and kind of explain the anatomy, the differences in anatomy, and how that pertains to elbow and elbow injuries. Yeah, if anyone wants some help figuring out the difference between a youth and an adolescent, you can come watch my oldest son's baseball team where we have a 10-year-old who's 5'8", and we've got a couple other ones, you know, that are mid four foot, mid four feet. So it's a really hard definition. Uh, from an orthopedic standpoint, we think of it more in people that are skeletally mature or immature, meaning their growth plates about the elbow if they're open or if they're closed. That has a lot of implications on how we treat elbows in throwing athletes. And you can't put a single age on it. Every kiddo is different. But in general, you're probably looking at a break point of around 13 or so, plus or minus. And that's actually an excellent answer because that's right. Some kids at 13 are grown men and some kids at 13 are, are totally immature. And I think that we treat elbow injuries based Exactly, that's correct on the growth plate. So focusing in on kind of the anatomy of the elbow, growth plate, um, the lateral elbow, medial elbow, what, what do we have to worry about in this age 
in this age population, number one, and in this uh, immature population, more importantly? Certainly the things that the baseball fan and the casual baseball fan out there are going to think of is Tommy John surgery. So that's one of the most common things that you see if you watch major league pitchers and whatnot. And that's the ligament that connects the end of the humerus, which is your kind of upper arm bone, to one of your two forearm bones. And that's on the inside or the medial part of your elbow. In a skeletally immature pitcher, they have that ligament as well, but more commonly, they can actually injure the growth plate. There's a growth plate that attaches to the distal end of your upper arm. And that or that growth plate, excuse me, will get injured oftentimes before the ligament will ever show any problems. And so when you throw, that ligament on the inside part of your elbow gets stretched. So if it stretches on one side, it closes on the other side. So in throwing athletes, you will also see compression injuries on the outside or lateral part of the elbow, especially the capitone. So the less commonly heard of, but more common thing that we see is something called osteochondritis desiccans or OCD lesions of the elbow, which are common in kids that throw and throw repetitively. Other things that are less common are the back part of the elbow. When you finish a throw, your arm extends maximally and that the end of the ulna can rotate back and it hits the back of your upper arm bone, the humerus, and it bumps there. And that can also cause problems. Those are probably the th three main things that I would think of inside elbow, outside elbow, back of the elbow. So let's go with that for just a minute. Cause I think that that was an excellent, um, introduction to, to adolescent elbow injuries. And let's talk about OCD of the lateral, uh, Capitellum, and let's talk about we can talk about baseball injuries, gymnasts, whatever we want to talk about in terms of the sport. But give us give us your your take on treatment of OCD injuries in the lateral elbow. Growth plates open, growth plates closed. So absolutely, if the growth plates are open, and that's again, you know, thirteen, they're probably closed. Twelve, there's a chance that they're open. Generally speaking, in kiddos that have open growth plates. Oftentimes, we don't call this OCD. Um, you would call it panners, and it's oftentimes able to be treated completely non-operatively. You shut them down, and the lesion can actually completely go away on MRI. Not always, but more commonly, significantly more commonly in patients with an open growth plate. Those that have a closed growth plate in these lesions on the capitellum or the outside part of the elbow. Those oftentimes will also depend on where that is. The OCD lesion is actually a fracture of the bone underlying the cartilage. You can imagine having carpet on top of a concrete floor. And what the OCD lesion is, is the concrete underneath the carpet is crumbled. Because our bones are living, we're able to heal those. So kids that are younger are more like salamanders where you cut apart off and they grow back. And for that reason, the younger they are, the better chance they have to heal that broken concrete underneath. The problem becomes when you have the broken concrete, you continue to load the outside part of the elbow, and now you have damage to the cartilage or that carpet that's on top. Once that happens, the cartilage can fray, 
fall off, become little loose pieces inside the elbow joint. Those can cause pain. They expose, expose more nerve endings. Those cause more pain. So it will depend a little bit on how bad the crumbling or the fractures are underneath and what we do to fix them. So, so taking that one step further, and I think it's important for everybody to understand that these are epiphyseal lesions that go right into the joint space. It, it's, it's not really the growth plate in and of itself. It's just that the growth plate's open, allowing better healing. As you said, the salamander analogy was outstanding. Um, so, so taking that one step further, young athlete comes in, he's got a lesion on the lateral aspect of the elbow. You're gonna treat that elbow conservatively initially growth plates are open expectations are going to heal what happens if it doesn't heal and and how do you work that patient up and, and what do they complain of do they have locking what, what what are their complaints when it doesn't heal well i hope they don't have locking if they have locking then i'm worried about a piece that's come off and that may need a procedure typically for those that's arthroscopy in my hands little poke holes around the elbow where you can go in and you can take those pieces out at the same time, you can address the OCD lesion. But if we're talking skeletally immature or skeletally mature with just no loose pieces, most of those time you're, you're going to shut those patients down initially, regardless of their skeletal maturity. And those patients are typically going to present with lateral elbow pain, worse with throwing. It may be, it can also be right away when you're pitching, you know, you're just starting lateral elbow pain a lot of times these kids will try to pitch through it it's really important for parents and coaches to you know ask ask their kids about this watch them for clues because a lot of these kids are competitive and don't want to come out and don't want to quit you have to be really careful and kind of take charge and I, you, I also see this oftentimes, and we'll probably get into it later. You have to be careful with kids playing in multiple leagues multiple coaches especially if they're going to be pitchers and catchers because each coach is going to have their own idea of how much the kid's pitching, not knowing what they're doing in the other leagues. So, so talk to us about range of motion. Athlete comes in, has a little bit of elbow pain. You get an x-ray. Maybe you see a little lesion on, on the x-ray. You get an MRI, and they've got an osteochondral defect or, or osteochondritis. And do they have full range of motion? What, what kind of things hurt them? And, 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 and how do you make that call just on physical exam? Or can you make that call on physical exam? I think it's difficult to make the call of an OCD on physical exam alone. Oftentimes you'll get the x-rays which show it. You mentioned MRI, but I actually think the CT scan is probably the best study for this in patients. I know we don't like to radiate kids and you have to be very cautious in what you do. You should probably wait to the tertiary surgeon who's gonna deal with this before you get that CT scan. Because again, this is a fracture of the bone underlying the cartilage. You may see edema and swelling on an MRI scan, but you need to know where exactly that fracture line is and if it's connected to the cartilage. If it's connected to the cartilage, there's a chance that it will heal. If the cartilage is completely delaminated or cut off from the bone, that's something that has a lower risk of healing. And it's something I would potentially be more aggressive with if they fail a non-operative program early on. And, and, and let's talk about that just for a second. Jackson, give us, what, what is a non-operative program therapy-wise? Are we just resting that athlete? Do we do any physical therapy? Are we looking at range of motion? In my experience, most of these kids don't have full extension or they'll have pain with extent, full extension. So Jackson, what, how, how are we going to treat these athletes conservatively 
in your hands? Most of the time, and again, like, like Dr. Shook was saying, it also depends on how severe what's happening at the elbow is. You know, if you're talking about something that's relatively acute, you know, and we're going, hey, this is pretty inflamed, this is pretty fired up, you know, we need to be calm with it. A lot of it, much like any other injury, is going to come down to load management. So obviously we want to see where they are. Um, like you said, from a range of motion perspective, you know, a lot of these kids, depending on where they are, like a lot of baseball athletes, you'll see just have this crazy amount of external rotation when they throw. They have the ability to get into these crazy positions and you're seeing this huge range. Um, but sometimes you might be missing internal rotation. Generally speaking, we're also just missing general strength. A lot of these kids are great at playing one sport all year round. And we may talk about sports specialization, but a lot of them aren't doing anything else. So we're lacking some general scapular strength, general rotator cuff strength. And so a lot of pressure is getting thrown to that elbow. So we don't necessarily have to put our emphasis just at that elbow. We're going to focus around that. So we'll improve the range of motion at the elbow. Start increasing the load to it, you know, progressing over time to whatever they can tolerate. Um, but we're going to put a lot of our emphasis other places too, you know, making sure that their shoulder girdle is in good shape as best as it can be for whatever sport they're playing, taking time off from their sport, and then eventually getting back to a throwing program of some kind. And again, that's going to be, you know, working with, you know, in this case, Dr. Shook going, hey, where do you think he's at right now? Do you want to start beginning some throwing program at this point? But make sure his range of motion is intact. Ensure that the strength of his shoulder as a whole, the shoulder girdle as a whole is good. Um, range of motion at the wrist. Most of the time I've found that they have lots of range of motion. They just don't have a lot of stability. So whatever stability we can find, we create. And then we begin getting them throwing as time goes on, especially as their symptoms die down. If it's really acute, obviously time away from it's going to help them. Um, but in my experience with a lot of these kids too, they want to get back. You know, they, they don't, they see this as, Hey, my bone will heal. When can I throw again? When can I throw again? I want to play. And so that's a really hard thing to manage with kids psychologically because they don't get the concept of things take time and we have to be patient. So um, even as though the physical side of it is just as important, the psych side of being like, Hey, this is our process. The next step is we got to make sure your range of motion is, is here. You know, maybe they're lacking a little bit of that final extension. Can we get that extension? Hey, we got there. Awesome. Let's look at what your shoulder looks like. How's your strength? Hey, this is looking better. Now we can go to this step. And so it's this gradual process, getting them back to, hey, I can throw a baseball again. Sometimes it's hard when they look at it as, I don't care that my elbow can extend. I want to throw a baseball again. So that's a lot of the stuff that I have to manage on this end anyways. Yep. And it's important to therapy is, you know, when they're in that early shutdown and they want to get back, it's important for the therapists out there listening. You also need to check their hips. So in patients with elbow injuries and throwers, oftentimes they have decreased range of motion in their hips, and that's a risk factor for elbow injuries and throwers. So don't forget the hips, even though it's not immediately connected to the elbow. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that kinetic chain gets overlooked a lot um, by doctors, physical therapists, especially non-sports doctors. And, 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 I, and I couldn't agree more. I think that's very important. So a couple questions. Number one, do you let the athlete hit before you let them throw? Uh, and number two, and we'll get into this in a second, what do you do when they don't heal? I mean, sometimes they don't, you get a CT or you get an MRI, there's bone marrow edema, uh, and they just don't seem to heal. So let, let's take the first question, and I'll ask both you guys, when, A, when can that athlete hit, and when can that athlete start an interval throwing program? Dr. Shook? So the interval throwing program, if you want to be, if you're aggressive, you're probably shutting down for at least four weeks, 
the general recommendation is probably closer to six weeks. Um, if it's my kid, I'm probably telling him six because I'm, you know, thinking about his elbow later in life. But as far as return to hitting, I'd probably let him go back to swinging earlier, but they wouldn't be hitting regular balls. They'd be hitting softer balls, lower impact. I don't want them hitting heavy balls, things like that, that are going to still load the radio capitellar joint. And that's going to be repetitive trauma. These kids that can't throw, they'll say, fine, I'll hit an hour and a half of BP every day <laughs> instead. And then you're still going to end up in the same spot. So you really have to shut them down for the most part. I can also say that one of the things that we've, or that I've done in the past anyways, is we work on other parts of their game. So bunting as a silly example, it still might be with a softer ball, but uh, you know, I've had a couple of kids that have just worked on like bunting down first baseline and sprinting, you know, at least they're doing some part of the sport. It may not be a full swing, but at that, you know, four week mark that Brad was talking about, that might be a time where we introduce parts of baseball. And then by that six week mark, maybe at that point, we're taking more full swing. But the, for throwing, uh, usually it's been around six weeks that, that anything that we've done has been throwing-wise. And, and Jackson, walk us through a little bit your progression. I mean, they just start throwing 100 feet or 10 feet, or but athlete gets a little, feels a little bit better. Things seem to be going pretty well in therapy. Mechanics are pretty good. Isokinetic chain's a little bit better. How do you start them throwing? What, what do you tell them? What, what do you tell mom and dad? What do you tell the coach? So I have always done it somewhat to tolerance, but certainly limiting them per week. So they, there have been some players who have been able to go, and a lot of it's velocity-based too. It might be you're just pitching, you know, 15 to 20 feet apart, or we'll say 15 yards apart, and it's at 50% of what you've got, just playing pitch and catch. And that might be at the most 20, 30, 40 pitches or throws, you know, and then the next week we'll progress that 10 or 15%. That's generally how I've always done it. Um, Certainly, I'm sure Brad has a, a certain way that he likes to do it. I've always also done it based on how they respond. You know, if I have a player go out and they throw 20 pitches from, you know, 20 yards apart and their elbows sore for, you know, a little longer than 24 hours or it gets sore really at all, then we need to cut back down to shorter distance or wait another week, let it recover some more. If they're able to throw 20 throws from 20 yards and their elbow feels okay, okay, we can progress that maybe 10 or 15 throws. You know, so a little bit of it is based on the kid too. You know, some people are going to heal at different rates than others. They're also going to handle that throwing motion better than others. Like you said, if we're working on other things, it might take a little longer to open their hip up so they can throw a little better. So sometimes it's easy just to look at the elbow, like you were saying earlier and go, Hey, we're progressing at 15 or 20 throws. And every week, this is what it has to look like a surgical protocol. Almost it's a little bit different when you're having to get a response from the kid. Hey, how's your elbow feel? Uh, you know what? It's a little bit sore today. I got to be honest. All right, well, let's, let's check it and see how it goes. Um, you know, so kind of that rate of perceived exertion sometimes makes a difference too, in terms of pain, you know, is it, is it really low grade? How far are we going? How can we progress it? But it's pretty slow, at least for me, I've taken kids pretty slow through it, but it's always progressively going up for at least four to six weeks. Yeah. We rely very heavily on our therapists for that because you can't write one individual program that fits oh. every kid. So it's important to understand, too, that throwers are horrible at rating their effort. You know, if you say throw 50% effort, throw 75% effort, they're terrible. If you're out there taking care of a lot of these kids as a therapist, it's probably not a bad idea to have some kind of radar gun so you can kind of figure out where these kids are and 
project up and down from that and objectively measure their output. And I think that's that is so true. Um, the, other, the other thing is generally we look at feet more than yards, but I guess you can do it any, any, any way you want to do it. Um, but I, but I think you're right. I think some kids 50% is a hundred percent and some kids 50% is 0%. And, and I do think, uh, with the advent of very inexpensive radi uh, radar guns, we should we should be charting that because I think that is a very valuable factor. So moving along just a little bit, athlete comes in, goes to physical therapy, maybe he's a little better, but you're just not convinced he's progressing. The kid's kind of on the cusp. Growth plates are kind of open. They're closing, but the uh, lesion just hasn't really progressed like you'd like to see it. What What is your next step? Dr. Shook and kind of what, what what should we be doing as sports orthopedists to take that next step and then explain to the parents? Yeah, so I think the next step at that point is use your imaging studies that you have available. If the cartilage remains intact, then you can consider retrograde drilling where you take K wires or small, fine little things that look like the lead from the inside of a pencil, but a smaller caliber, and you drill those into the backside of where that lesion is to try to create marrow vents that force blood to go into that area. And those, they're removed right away. We, you can either do it assisted with arthroscopy or more commonly just under fluoroscopy, the use of x-rays during the surgery. And that can be one option. If the cartilage is damaged and fraying off, then you're looking at a procedure, again, arthroscopy go in, you clean up the areas of a frayed cartilage and you can do something called microfracture where you create, again, little bone vents, but from the articular or cartilage side to try to create scar tissue or fibrocartilage, a, a different type of cartilage in there. Um, other things, again, if we're progressing up the ladder, if you have a larger lesion where the cartilage dis is disrupted and it also affects the very far lateral or outside part of the elbow, that's an unstable lesion. And then you're gonna more likely wanna consider what we call allograft plugs or OATS procedure where you take cartilage from a different part of the body. You can actually use the rib cage um, where the costal convo cartilage is and you can use that. And we transplant it from one part of the body to the other to try to get good healthy cartilage there to protect the elbow joint. Uh, those are kind of the mainstays as you work your way on up. And, and Jackson, let's, let's talk about rehabbing, um, whether it's a cartilage reconstruction, a Macy, whatever, what, what, uh, whatever kind of procedure we're gonna do to, to regenerate articular cartilage, talk about rehab of let's say a microfracture versus rehab of some type of uh, cartilage restoration procedure well we're certainly and, and brad you can chime in on this as you want but we've always taken longer with the cartilage procedure um you know with a fracture obviously it has to heal or that little the micro trauma that was done has to heal but range of motion is typically that first thing that has to get back as soon as we can get it in both cases um certainly we don't want to create any more fraying of that cartilage that's there but that range of motion is key immediately you know as quickly as we can get it we want to get it um loading to the joint is probably going to be a little bit more delayed with the cartilage um at least that's what i have always done with it is just delayed a little bit just to allow that to heal you know that bone is going to heal well but once we 
you know, freight a little bit of that cartilage off or cleaned it up anyways. Um, we're a little bit more lenient on that, but just like any other injury, you have to load the tissue at some point. So once we've gotten that range of motion back, some kind of loading has to be done at the elbow, even just basic flexion and extension um, at the elbow until they're basically getting back to doing whatever they need there. Um, I would say that that's the quickest first steps of that anyways. And Brad, you can reflect on that more. Um, but in terms of that acute first four to six weeks, eight weeks, that's usually what we're doing. Yep. Range of motion starts nearly immediately in most of these cases. Elbows, when you operate on them, like to get stiff. That can be the kiss of death in a thrower with a stiff elbow. You need that range of motion. So these people are going to need to move right away. And actually movement without loading. So you don't walk on your hands. But if just the movement of the elbow actually moves joint fluid past the cartilage and helps actually heal that process as well. So it's important for range of motion. Loading depends on which type of surgery you do, what kind of fixation you get, and then really how the patient's doing as well. So, so it's a tough question to answer, but mom and dad come in, the lesion's unstable, you address the lesion however you address the, le address the lesion, whether you have to fixate it or you have to graft it. And the first question I always get asked is, well, when can Larry go back to playing, to pitching, or when can he go back to playing baseball and you know when, when is he ready? When he's when is he a hundred percent? And and generally, again, that's a variable answer. But what do you tell the parents? I think it, it depends on which procedure you're doing. You could be anywhere from starting another shutdown kind of period for six weeks and then see how you're doing. If you did something like retrograde drilling, if you do a procedure where they have a big osteochondral fragment, meaning the cartilage and the bone is fractured off, and you need to fix that. That's a fairly unstable lesion. I'm not letting a kid go back to throw until I get some type of imaging evidence that that fracture has healed. And I would tell them, you better be prepped for at least six months at a minimum for that. that and that, that's exactly right. And I, I think preparing the parents early for the time frame, because otherwise at every office visit, the questions are the same. When can I start to throw? When can I get in the batting cage, et cetera? So, so let's move along and let's, since we, we've kind of defined three areas of the elbow, let's talk about posterior elbow injuries and give me your thoughts on, on posterior elbow injuries on both kids with open plates and kids with closed plates. Yeah, the open plates, you can get um, stress fractures, essentially, from the growth plates as you're decelerating your arm as it comes through. That can put stress fractures on the growth plate of the olecranon, and those can either never fuse or you can get just pain from that that's one possibility in more mature so we're thinking like high school you know later adolescent kind of kids that have a skeletally mature elbow that's where you're going to come into more of the adult type pattern of having a lax ulnar collateral ligament or the tommy john ligament and then with those patients, because they have a little bit of laxity in their elbow, they then develop impingement on the back part of the elbow where those bones bump into each other and they get extra bone that grows and forms. So they hit earlier on in their range of motion and that causes pain. And, and, and that's an interesting, the val valgus extension complex is, is an interesting problem. Uh, so let, let's take it in two parts. Let's talk about conservative care and then let's talk about uh, surgical care for that problem. And then let's talk about the relationship between the UCL and 
maybe taking down a little bit too much bone posteriorly or, or what our concerns are. So Jackson, give us a little idea of how you're going to rehab that athlete. I mean, it's easy and someone's got an open growth plate, they have a stress fracture or some osteolysis, you rest them. That's, that's pretty easy. But now the kid's 12, 13 years old. He's been throwing since he's six. Um, as you alluded to, he's on four teams. He's on a traveling team. He's got a pitching coach. Things are way out of whack. What are you going to do to rehab that, that athlete who's got that, that posterior medial lesion and is getting some impingement and is getting pain? So some of the, what we can do anyways is some kind of mobilization to the joint, you know, to see if that can create some relief. Uh, load management, again, is going to become a thing. I can't tell you how many athletes I've worked with who we find out how many teams they are actually on. Mom and dad might say two. It ends up being six. Um, and over time, the kid kind of releases that to you. Um, and I can honestly say that just by changing their load management, just by getting them to throw hundred less a week or 200 less a week. It just gives it some time to relax and recover a little bit. But in the meantime, you know, we obviously checking the range of motion, seeing where it's at. Um, and again, you know, outside of mobilization to the elbow, which can be effective. A lot of it is focusing on the other aspects of their, of their arm that is giving them difficulty. You know, I think it's really easy just to look at that elbow and go, Hey, this elbow is what's giving me pain. Well, what's your shoulder look like right now? You're throwing the ball a thousand times plus a week. So are there other places that stress is not transferring too well? Like you alluded to earlier, their hips, what do they look like? You know, a lot of these injuries, even though they're at the same location, your blueprint's relatively kind of similar. You know, obviously letting it rest isn't as helpful here, but letting it rest from throwing a thousand times a week is. While we do that, can we build strength around that elbow, bring stability around that elbow and at the shoulder specifically? And there's not a lot of tissues crossing that elbow that are super supportive. So I typically will go with anything we can do to mobilize the elbow a little bit. You know, if it's causing them discomfort, find some acute relief, but really start building back up the shoulder. You know, again, finding the parts and load managing them. I cannot tell you what it's taken just to get kids to throw the ball a little bit less um, and participate in a couple other things, just general strength training um, for their arm and having a day away from baseball and taking a day to do that. You know, convincing the kid and the parents that that little shift will allow them to compete better later on. Because if you're having this injury now, the more you keep doing, the less likely it is that they'll be able to compete at this in three, four years. Like Brad talked about earlier, if it was my son, he's waiting six weeks. You know, so sometimes I have to look at them and say, if this was my kid, I wouldn't want him doing what he's doing right now for the longevity of his elbow. So we're going to focus a lot on mobilize the elbow, make sure the range of motion's there, and then build the strength up otherwise while we manage what they do outside of it. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of have a talk with the parents as well, because oftentimes the kids that are coming in that are on multiple travel teams, et cetera. I mean, they're shooting for college scholarships, trying to get into the major leagues. And we know that patients that violate their pitch counts as kids are more likely to end up with Tommy John surgery. If you look at major leaguers, they've done studies from the major league research group of team physicians that went back and looked, those that are that routinely violated, the now recommended pitch counts are the ones that are often more at risk of developing or an ulnar collateral ligament tear that needs Tommy John surgery. So, so I think that begs two questions. One is, what, what, what's a reasonable pitch count for a 15-year-old, or let's say a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old? And do you ever look at things like 
arm slot, release point, crossing over, some of the issues. I mean, may, maybe they're just not throwing the ball. Maybe their biomechanics just aren't very good. Is there any place to look at? Um, and everybody can agree these kids are throwing well. I mean, they're the relief pitchers when they're seven years old. It's it's insane. But is there any point in looking at the biomechanics of, of how one of these kids throws throw a baseball? Dr. Shook. There's absolutely a role for that. But again, you need somebody with some special training cameras, et cetera, to watch that because you have to have the timing in place between your hips moving at, when your arm comes through, et cetera. It's not, it's a very complex interaction that needs kind of, you know, somebody with a trained eye and oftentimes video accompaniment to help you figure that out individually. Now, as far as a pitch count, what's appropriate, you know, that there are actual recommended guidelines out there that were developed by USA baseball and the major leagues. So if you Google MLB pitch smart, it will, it's the first one that comes up in Google and there's an entire chart that'll tell you break broken down from what's I got to open up in front of me here, ready to 75. talk. Five. Yeah. It's kids broken down from seven to eight and, you know, a couple of year intervals all the way up to 19 to 22 and they'll give you a max pitch count in a game. And then it'll also then give you the amount of days rest needed between those throws. So parents can look at that. Coaches can look at that. And, you know, it's very easy to find pitch or pitch smart MLB. And, and, Brad, and you you, go ahead. Go I ahead. Apologize. Brad, do you find too? So I've seen this a little bit more with kids who are a little more developed. You mentioned the kid on your son's team who's five, eight already. Right. And some of these kids who develop a little faster, they also throw much harder. Have you found that velocity is also playing a very large role in this? So obviously the biomechanics are going to play a huge role um, and pitch count's going to play a big role. But when you've got a kid who can throw 70 or he's got this huge velocity and then obviously you're adding that pitch count, I've just found that those tend to be my harder, more difficult cases. Some kids athletically just aren't able to produce a lot of velocity. So yeah. even though their pitch counts might be similar, that kid who's throwing heat yeah. is the one who I'm a little more concerned about. So I've seen much more of those than I've seen of the earlier where it's the smaller kid who's still developing. Yeah, your, your intuition is 100% right. So that's actually been looked at scientifically. Increased velocity leads to increased stress on the inside part of the elbow, more likely to have you know ligamentous injuries to the ulnar collateral ligament. So, I mean, you're right on there higher velocity, higher risk of injury. And the pitch counts obviously aren't set up for that. And that's something that, you know, you kind of have to take into consideration. I'm not sure that we're at the point from a scientific perspective where we can say, if you pitch this much, you're decreasing your pitch count five pitches. We're not at that point yet, but. So do you have that conversation with the parents that your, your, your son's, on three teams, taking pitching lessons. He's on two travel teams. And by the way, he's throwing twice as much as any major league baseball player. And coaches are going to do that. They, you know, you're talking about the five, eight guy throws 70. Well, if you're the coach and you want to win, what do you, you're not going to the kid who's four foot three, who's throwing 40. You're going to the kid who's five, eight, throwing 72 and saying, you know, step up. So is that a conversation you have with parents? I think it's the conversation you're obligated to have with parents. Um, our goals may not align for a period of time, but I think you have to take the time and kind of paint the future for them. If either route is taken, you know, you could potentially put your kiddo at risk of having a bad elbow for the rest of his life that 
where I'm going to now have to recommend that he have to stop going after certain types of careers, you know, in his life or certain type of recreational activities, as opposed to if we take the correct path now, he still has a chance to do X, Y, or Z, but he also has a decreased risk of this. In these patients, I'll actually print out the pitch smart and I'll give it to the parents. And, you know, maybe it keys them in to actually go and look it up a little bit when they're on their phone, you know, waiting for their next appointment or on their way home. But at least you have to do something to have that difficult conversation with them. I find that really effective. I do the same thing. I, I, I print it out, I hand it to them and I say, so, so look at this and, and be honest, count your kids pitches this week or the next two weeks and let's reference it uh, towards the pitch smart numbers and let's see where we are. And, and parents are humbled. I mean, they really are. And I think giving them that whole thing, you know, my story is, Hey, if you want your kid to be a piano player, keep going the way you're going. But I think at this point, um, it is important for, for parents because parents are crazy. They think, you know, they think that their, their child is the next Nolan Ryan. And, and it's just, it's just unrealistic. So what are we going to do with that kid who doesn't really get better? He's got a little bit of pain in the posterior aspect of his elbow. He's still impinging. Is there any place for biologics and, and kind of what are your next steps? We're kind of regressing a little bit, but let, let's get back to that posterior elbow just for a second. So I'm very scientifically based and I like data to do everything that I do. I'm not sure we're there at biologics um, for posterior medial impingement. That's a mechanical problem, a structural problem that you can't biology your way out of. That's not a cartilage covered surface. So in my mind, that's, you know, non-operative management. If that doesn't work, then it's an elbow arthroscopy where you can remove areas of bone so they don't impinge. That can get rid of the pain, but you absolutely need to let the patient know that by doing this, I've loosened up your elbow and that now there's more stress on the inside part of your elbow. And not a baseball player, but took care of a professional tennis player who had this exact thing. So had the postromedial impingement, elbow arthroscopy, had the conversation, came back after returning to the tour, and then began having symptoms from her ulnar collateral ligament with a grade two strain, which then treated with biologics for that. But it's a risk and you have to talk to the patients about that. So what you're saying is if you take off some of that spur, you might overload the UCL creating some overload over the medial elbow. Is that kind of. Because the body's reaction to that stress on the inside part of the elbow is to create more bone in the back part of the elbow to stop the stretch of that. So if you remove that, reaction the bone that's formed there now you're allowing that ligament to stretch again and i think that's really important for all the therapists and all the doctors and i think most sports orthopedists because it's kind of drilled into us understand that but it is a very important concept i think for everyone to understand is treating elbows so we're going to move along to the medial aspect of the elbow we may, may be running a little over here which is fine um but let's talk about you know, what is little leaguer's elbow? You hear everybody talk about little leaguer's elbow. What is it? So in my mind, that's, you know, in lay terms, any elbow that hurts in a kiddo, in my mind, most of the time, that's lateral elbow pain, which we've kind of covered in the skeletally immature athlete, in my mind, from an orthopedist perspective. But I think 
in the general population, that's any kid who's a thrower that their elbow hurts. And, and when we talk about medial elbow issues, now that we've kind of moved from lateral to posterior to medial, what besides UCL, which we'll talk about in a second, open growth plate, athlete comes in, says, boy, the inside of my elbow sore, hurts with progressive pitching. How do we work that patient up and, and kind of what are our steps for treatment? So that's a kiddo that obviously you're going to want to do a very good exam on that they'll oftentimes have tenderness palpation on the inside part of their elbow, their large bony prominence, their medial epicondyle. That's somebody that I'm also going to do O'Driscoll's moving valgus stress test on because that will stress the ulnar collateral ligament. And again, that's attached to your medial epicondyle. So it's going to pull that and that's going to hurt. Um, and kiddos with this, it's important to get bilateral elbow x-rays because you want to look for widening of that growth plate. If it's pulled off, that's somebody that I'm going to consider putting a screw in to kind of stabilize that fragment. If it's, you know, not widened, but it's just got, you know, pain there, then that's a shutdown period again. And, and how long do you think you should shut them down for? Uh, again, it, it depends. I think I'm a little probably more aggressive on the medial side of the elbow. So I would say minimum six weeks for that. And do you send them the therapy after that or kind of, kind of walk us through you rested them. They come back. Well, I'm not really having any pain. X-ray looks better. Growth plate maybe is a little better aligned. Do they go over to Jackson or what, what, what do they do next? They're absolutely going back to Jackson and doing a return to throw program because you have to, again, build up your strength from, and I would probably send them there before that because they can do core. They can work on leg strength. They can do other things in the interim, but they do not go back to throwing until they're pain-free. And, you know, that time period has passed and then they do their return to throw program again, back working your way up the ladder, backing down. If you have a bad day, a couple of days where you're having more pain you don't progress and not until you make it to the top of that ladder. Can you go back to throwing in games? And Jackson walk us through, maybe it's not that much different than the rehab we talked about, but there are, are there any differentiating factors for the medial aspect of the elbow versus let's say the posterior medial corner or the lateral aspect of the elbow? So I think something that we haven't really discussed either yet is the fact that, you know, although we're looking at the bones for all this stuff, you all are going to have some muscle soreness inflammation with some like especially the medial elbow you know, you're gonna so i'll give a personal anecdote i played quarterback my entire life i cannot tell you how often i was dead sore right there right in that flexor group it was always sore my medial elbow would get sore but that was always one of those things that i was trying to manage like i was had ice on my elbow every night after practice and back then i say back then it really wasn't that long ago but back when i played that was you know, that was one of those things that no one really understood. You went to the trainer and you just got everything iced up. But what I lacked was I was not building up anything else when that happened. So I would get my elbow sore and I'd have to take a couple of days off every couple of weeks because I physically couldn't throw a football anymore. And God knows what long-term effects came from that. But so one of the things I do look at is seeing if we can decrease some of that soreness that's at that muscle. So some of that might just be gentle stretching in the other direction. Um, but similar to what, what Brad was saying, most of the emphasis is on load management at the elbow, making sure the range of motion stays gradually loading, but this is actually a great opportunity to teach athletes how to move or, you know, how do you hinge? 
Do you know how to squat? You know, what is your, you know, even if you're not pressing anything, what's overhead look like? Um, you know, I've found that most kids don't have that general idea of resistance training. And one thing that we have noticed too, is that especially when you stop a kid from doing stuff, um, if they really don't do anything and in today's culture, I mean, our rates of kids not getting enough activity is high. Um, if six weeks of you doing nothing, when you go out back out to pitch, you know, your elbow might be healed, but I can't tell you how many times I've had a kid come in with another injury just from doing nothing. They go right back to throwing hard. Hey, my shoulder hurts, you know, Hey, this hurts. So I put a lot of emphasis, like you were saying, core work, teaching them how to move, teaching the rest of their body, how to move around the elbow. It also gets a lot of buy-in from them. It, it kind of gets that kid know, Hey, you know what? I'm doing all these other things that are going to help my swing, help my throw. Um, this kind of circles back to mom and dad again, but another thing that kids often miss is the other position they play when they're not pitching. Um, like if you're the catcher, you're still throwing every single time there's a pitch. So you've just switched positions. You might be throwing a little less hard, but you're still throwing every single time. So I've often, either I'm talking to a coach or a parent, hey, when they get back to playing, maybe consider letting them play or putting them in the outfield on days that they pitch. So if you need them to play, they can pitch, but put them in left field or right field when they're done, if they have to play, otherwise they can sit. But if they go from pitcher to catcher or from pitcher to shortstop or second base, you're throwing the ball a ton still. Um, so those are things that are, even though they're in treatment, you're dropping those nuggets in their head. So when they get back to throwing, they again, have a game plan for it. Tangent yeah. there for you, Rich. Absolutely. And if you need a reminder, if you need something, you know, modern day to remind people how important it is to do your prehab, essentially, or on your way back to full performance, you have to look no further than professional athletics for the last year with COVID and the shutdown of all the preseason, et cetera, higher rates of ACL injuries, higher rates of Tommy John surgery, all these things go into it. And so while we're on a very much smaller scale, these things are still relevant to the patient who comes in that's had a shutdown and return to throw program. You have to go back and build your strength back, your common flexors, et cetera, before you can go back to full board. No, I think that's right. And, and, and to taking it one step further, which you guys both uh, were spot on, I think, is general strengthening. Looking at the biomechanics, you know, Ben Killer talking about this biomechanical chain. And I think we forget that sometimes. And, it, you know, you got to look at the scap. You got to look at the hips. You have to look at rotation. And what is a better time when everybody's sitting around playing Fortnite 14 hours a day instead of working out? So I really think that this is a golden opportunity to get these kids biomechanically stable. So let's talk about one last thing before I get killed for being uh, too long on this podcast. And that is the UCL. So I'm sure you're seeing it. We're seeing it sports guys across the country are seeing it we're seeing younger and younger kids come in with strain grade two sprains partial thickness tears full thickness tears uh, of the ulnar collateral ligament and 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 walk us through that a little bit kind of your thoughts your exam talk about the dynamic valgus stress test O'Driscoll's stress test and then talk about your treatment plan for these kids and and I'm talking about kids 13 14 15. Yeah, and oftentimes they're coming in hoping they can get it, thinking they're going to get it out of the way and then come back later and then they can go through the rest of their life without needing anything else done, which is not true. Um, but it starts off with me. Obviously, you're going to start with an MRI. And if you have 
you know, grade one strain that's shut down. Grade two, there's some debate on what you want to do with that. If there's a complete avulsion off of either, and you're going to obviously do something about it, complete tear through the mid substance, you know, you're getting surgery, et cetera. I think grade two is probably what's changing the most because there is potentially a role for biologics where you may make some progress with that. Grade ones probably don't need it. If you have somebody that's really pressing, it's reasonable to try. Um, but again, it's going to be shut down for those and then surgery for the higher grades or those that fail. And I think it's reasonable to make a decision, you know, within two to three months of a shutdown for these people, depending on where they are in their season of deciding, okay, go or no go for surgery at that time point. So you don't make them go an entire six months, you know, three months shut down, three months return, then decide. You can make that decision a little bit earlier. That way they can get their way through the rehab, et cetera. And what's your go-to procedure? Somebody comes in, they have, let's talk about a partial tear. They're still symptomatic. Maybe you tried uh, a biologic. They're still having a problem. What's your go-to procedure for that athlete? So they're getting a reconstruction. I have not done any primary repairs um, in my practice. They're getting full reconstructions. And, and what do you, are you using Palmaris or what are you using for the reconstructions? Palmaris is my preference. Absolutely. And, and no bridging, no internal brace. I have, um, I have not done the internal brace. I think that, you know, it can, you can potentially over tighten and there's data that says the, that's not true, but I don't think there's enough to tell you one way or the other. You can certainly do that if you want to. I'm not sure it's hundred percent necessary. And, and tell us your fixation method. You, you're, you're taking kids 15, you take the Palmeiras. How, how, how do we fix it? So I think there's a lot of different ways that are out there. You know, you can dock them. There's interesting techniques with endo buttons where you can fix them through the ulna and humerus as well. That's probably a little bit stronger biomechanically than tying over bone bridges, but I think it's really dealer's choice in that regard. I think the, the most important thing to do is to get them back into an anatomic position. I think that makes the most difference. And, and let's talk real quick about the rehab. Um, when, how long do you immobilize them for? Like you said, elbows tend to get stiff a little bit. Give us your post-op and then give us a time frame in terms of when they can start their interval throwing program and then when you expect them back throwing. So I think that, you know, that when you can get back throwing there, you could probably potentially, uh, I may have lost you. Hopefully not. Didn't lose me. Okay. You. Off my screen. I'll just keep talking. Oh. Um, usually you tell people a year, I think you can compress that reliably within nine months to get them all the way through. There is some thoughts. You can push some people to do it within six months, but I think that's pretty aggressive and you have to have a patient that, probably isn't a pitcher. You're looking at more of a fielder, et cetera, or a, a more of a position player, not a catcher, not a pitcher. And again, that's going to be somebody who you can really watch closely. That's more of your professional athlete who their job every day is to go in and do rehab. That's probably not going to be the one that we see generally in our practice that we follow up through intermittently in clinic. And, and, and so they come back, let's say they come back in 12 months, whenever, nine to 12 months, what's the re-injury rate? What, what, do you, what do you tell them in terms of what are your chances of re-injuring your, your UCL after reconstruction? And, and what do you tell the parent you, you, you touched on who says, look, why don't we just go ahead and 
just do a Tommy John because my 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 kid can throw harder after he gets a Tommy John. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's probably the most accurate data out there. Um, I I tend to look it up. I honestly don't have all the return to play memorized. A lot of the data is from the major leagues, and that's not what we're dealing with in the community on a regular basis. Um, obviously, you have a higher risk of not returning to the same level or above if you're a pitcher. Um, catchers are closely behind that. Fielding, obviously, higher rate of return beyond that. Um, I generally will quote people, you know, I'll, I'll go look up the major league data and tell them and say, in the best case with professionals, that this is their only job. This is their failure rate. I would expect your failure rate to be higher than this is generally what I do. I don't remember having memorized off the top of my head. That's perfect. So wrapping up here, um, what do we miss Dr. Shook? And then we'll, uh, ask Jackson, what, what should we have talked about that we didn't talk about? I think it would have been helpful to have a psychologist in here to help us talk, figure out how to tell the parents and convince them that what we're saying will help their kids. That may be something where you want to have one of these nice little zoom televisits where you have the sports psychologist in there with us. That would be helpful. No, I think that's interesting. And, and in some of the arthroscopy podcasts, when, which I'm sure you're listening to that, that is always a factor rotator cuff, et cetera, is, you know, what, what, what what's the mental status. And I think the parents really, I mean, are the problem and, and you really have to deal with false expectations of coaches and parents. And I think that's exactly, I mean, that's a spot on Jackson, give us what we missed and what we should uh, wrap up with here. I mean, I think you could have an entire podcast on it is just on generally giving people the details and the data on sports specialization and what that looks like, what that can do to a kid. I mean, that's a, in terms of the things that you see, uh, even now, most people see it as, well, if they specialize, they're going to get a scholarship. We have no data to support such things. You know, we don't have any of that, but I think a lot of people just kind of willy-nilly think that's the truth. Uh, and I think a lot of kids, even even the kids that I work with, don't really ever say they want to specialize. They like to do other things, but it's not really preached that way, whether it's mom or dad or the AAU coach who wants them to play all year round. But the benefits of kids doing multiple things, going from jujitsu to baseball to their seven on seven football league to just climbing trees. You know, we have such an issue today with kids only doing one thing and outside of that, they're completely sedentary. So there's a lot that needs to be expressed. And, you know, maybe that's on us as clinicians and as a healthcare community as a whole is pushing kids to do more things outside of whatever their primary sport is, you know, and it, making sure that that is not demonized. You know, the percentage chance of you getting to college sports at any level is low. You know, so why aren't we teaching you these long-term things that you can benefit from? Because you're going to be a weekend warrior a lot longer than you're going to be a high school athlete or a college athlete or an NFL athlete. So encouraging parents that that's important and showing them the outcomes of that. You know, like this, this is the possibility. You know, this elbow injury your son has right now could limit his ability to play anything when he's older paddle boarding you can throw it out the window volleyball sorry that elbow is always that could always be an issue um i think educationally that needs to be something that we push harder for um in especially the orthopedic realm is understanding what sports specialization looks like encouraging people to do different things especially just generally resistance training i think there's this huge stigma around kids working out 
Um, we're not asking kids to power lift and snatch and weight lift, but teaching them the movements, teaching them how to load. Um, you know, we're loading a baseball a thousand times a week. Lord knows we should be doing some kind of good squatting, you know, 25% of that or anything. So that for me is a big thing that I think, you know, future podcasts can discuss, but in this realm, that's, that's an important part. No, I think that's excellent. Before, before you got on Dr. Shoker, we were talking about Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes, both who are uh, absolutely excellent pitchers. So uh, there's no question that we're specializing too early, number one. And, uh, you know, when you talk to the, the central scouting and the scouts, they like guys that are multi-sport athletes. So I think parents are so hell-bent on, like you said, getting that college scholarship, turning that kid into the next Nolan Ariane, you know, so Nolan Ryan or somebody who – is just not realistic. And if you look at the numbers of your chances of getting a D1 scholarship, they're not very good. So it's not worth killing your kid's elbow to get to somewhere you're probably not going to get to. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you guys. This was excellent. We may have to bust it up into two parts. It was a little long, but all really, really good stuff and, and, and things that therapists, doctors, uh, and patients alike should, should really listen to. So thank you like it a lot uh real quick uh how does someone get a hold of you uh dr shook i think the easiest way is to just hop onto google find the mayo clinic and search for orthopedics there good deal jackson how do they get a hold of you uh, i guess the fastest way would probably also be to google or you can find me at jackson on any social media platform all right. Well, both of you, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Rick, always a, a wonderful conversation. I got to tell you, I actually followed this one. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't fit into the category. My parents didn't push me. <laughs> but if they did, I'd probably be a, a professional, you know, pitcher. No, wouldn't have been. All right, everybody, thank you very much for joining In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Thank you. And uh, we're going to have another great conversation shortly. And yeah, Dr. Rick, we'll probably have to break this one up. But it doesn't yeah, this, matter. This, this, it's media on both sides. <laughs> no, it was really good. Hey, you guys, thank you very much.